morning. If you've been with us, you know we've been in the book of Galatians. We're going to continue in that this morning. And, and as we begin, I want to ask a question, put a picture in your mind a little bit. If you've ever been to one of the places where they have a, I don't know the proper word for it, but where they have the big hedges and it's a maze inside of the hedges. You ever see that? They have a lot in a... Old palaces in Europe and different places like that. In my mind, I think of uh, going to the Palace of Versailles just outside of Paris. Years ago, I went and you, you walk out the back of this giant palace and, and there's huge steps down to these elaborate gardens and they have those all over the place, different little spots where you can walk through the, the different plants and the hedges. And, and as you walk down the steps, you get down into the garden and then you walk into them and it's easy to get lost real quick. You, you walk into them, and then all of a sudden you have no point of reference, and you're just right there in the middle of it. And once you get in the middle, it's kind of hard to see exactly where you're going and what's happening around anywhere else, and then you have to walk back out. And the reason I say that is that I feel like a lot of times when we open our Bibles and we just flip open to a spot, it's like we've walked into the hedges. And we suddenly don't see the big picture anymore, and we get kind of caught up in what, what's right in front of us, and we get lost a little bit. Um, a lot of times, I like to use an example, and hopefully it will turn from negative to positive today as we go through our passage. But a lot of times it's that way if you open up the book of, of uh, Leviticus. If you've ever done the, the read through the Bible in the year, usually like around March, you hit Leviticus, and that's usually where everybody quits. <laughs> kind of like, I don't really know what's going on here, and all this stuff about sacrifices and different things. And we get to that point, and it's like you're in the hedge. It's like you've walked into it, and you don't see anything else, and you're so, all these details and all these things, and it's hard to see the big picture. Maybe that's the case this morning as we had our reading from Genesis 15. And that's okay if it is. We're going to come back to that in a little bit, but as you read about God telling Abraham to take some animals and cut them in half and line them up, and then a smoking pot, and all this stuff, and you think, What's going on here exactly? And sometimes we do that because we don't see the big pictures and we don't see the big connections in Scripture. And I say all that to say is, is we move into Galatians and the things that Paul talks about today. He makes some great big connections between the promise and the law. And it opens up Scripture in a lot of ways. It opens up Leviticus in a lot of ways. So I say that to say when we do that, it's kind of like you go back up the steps in the palace of Versailles, and you go back up, and then you can see, and you go, ah, that's where I was. That's why I was so lost. Now I see it. So I hope this morning as we move through Galatians, you start to see some of the big connections, and it makes sense. And we'll come back to that passage in Genesis 15, and hopefully that makes more sense to you when we do. But this morning as we look at Galatians, we're going to be in chapter 3, if you want to turn there with me, that's where we're going to be. Chapter 3, we looked at verses 1 through 9 last week, and we're going to pick up, and we're going to look at 10 to 22. And as you're getting there, just as by way of review, if you haven't been here, you haven't been with us, or, or you missed a week, or whatever, the first two chapters of Galatians are just the, the main purpose of Galatians. Paul's writing to correct some bad teaching. There, there's false teachers that have come in the church, and they say, you're saved by Jesus plus some other stuff. And we really could, we could sum it up like this. They're saying, you believe, you do works, and then you're saved. And Paul says, no, that is not the gospel. He says, you believe, and you're saved, and then you do works in response to being saved. And just that little getting the order wrong, Paul says, you don't have the gospel anymore. And that's what he's writing Galatians about. And as we saw in the first two chapters, Paul's very much writing, defending himself. He planted these churches in the area of Galatia, and now they've moved away from what he said. So he gives his defense to say, no, you should listen to me and not these teachers. 
But then as we saw last week, when he gets to chapter 3, the first two chapters are his, his personal defense. And then chapters 3 and 4, he turns to a theological defense. I'm going to tell you from the Bible why this is true. And last week, that's what we saw. He turns and he, di- he directly goes to the Galatians. And he kind of had two parts last week. The first part was very experiential. And he says to them, do you remember how you were saved? You weren't saved by your works. You were a pagan people that didn't know anything of God. And you heard the gospel and you got saved. That's how you got the Holy Spirit. He says, so you weren't saved by your works. And then he turns and he goes back to Abraham. And he says, even Abraham wasn't saved by his works. He was saved by faith. And he starts to make that connection. And that's where we ended last week. We stepped into that, but we didn't get to the fullness of it. And what Paul's going to do today as we continue in Galatians is he's going to make connections between Moses and the law that God gave Moses and the promise that he gave Abraham. And he's going to say, they're not at odds. They go perfectly together. They're talking about the same thing. And he's going to show us why. And it's a, I don't want to say it's a huge, I don't want to set you off that it's a big, huge, weighty thing, argument, but it's, it's a theological argument. And he goes back to the Old Testament and he makes his points, but what he makes is a wonderful truth. And if we stick with it and we really look at the arguments he's making, he shows us how they go together, the law and the promise. And that's what we're going to look at today, how they go together. So let's look at verses 10 to 22, and then we'll work through them. But let's read that first. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather. The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean. The law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. So as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. So why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Let's pray and then we're going to look at those verses. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for the coherence in it, going all the way back to the very beginning that your promise has stood all this time and the law works perfectly with us, I pray that you would give us eyes to see that, that we'd see the beauty of the gospel and what you did for us through Jesus. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. I don't want that to throw you. That's a bunch of verses. 
Now, a lot of stuff about promise and law and different things, but I think when we really work through it, it comes together very nicely, and Paul makes a great argument, and he shows us how the two go together. So this morning, I want us to ask three questions as we work through it, and the first is, what is the promise? The second is, what is the purpose of the law? And the third is, how do they fit together? So what is the promise? What is the purpose of the law? And how do they fit together? So let's start with the first one. What is the promise? Look back with me at verse 8. We're going to go back just a little bit to what we talked about last week. Because he started this argument last week. And in verse 8 he says, In the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. And we talked about the promise a little bit last week and what it means, and and we hit on it right there. What Paul quotes there in verse 8 is going back to Genesis 12. That's the Abrahamic covenant. If you've ever heard that before, you've studied the Bible, you've grown up in church, you've probably heard that mentioned before. Abrahamic covenant is given in Genesis 12, 1-3. But it's not just given there because God gives it in Genesis 12, and then he gives it in Genesis 15, and then he gives it in Genesis 17, and Genesis 24, he says it over and over and over. But right there in Genesis 12, when I mentioned this last week, the promise was to Abraham, I'm going to give you a great number of descendants. I'm going to give you lots and lots of grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And he says, and then not only am I going to do that, I'm going to give them a land they're going to live in. And not only that, I'm going to make them a great nation. And he says, and ultimately, I'm going to bless the world through your seed. And that's the four parts of the promise. So we talked about that last week. We hit on that just a little bit this week, but... as we move forward in Paul's argument, we need to get a greater picture of what that really means. What he's actually saying, what the promise means. And to really get the idea of a promise, this may seem obvious, but you need to stop and really understand what a promise is. Just in general terms, what is a biblical promise? And what we see when we look at this and we read through scripture and we read what it says, a promise is a one-sided agreement. God gives the promise. It's one-sided. I'll give you an example. If I say... Uh, if you come to me and you say, I'm getting in from the airport tomorrow, can you pick me up? And I say, yes, I will be there at 3 o'clock, I promise I will pick you up. That agreement is all on me, the one making the promise. You're going to get to the airport and you're going to be standing there and you're just, all, your job is just to wait. Right? You have to believe that I'm going to do what I said. I made the promise, but you have to take it by faith that I'm going to show up and pick you up. That is a one-sided agreement. It's all on me. Because if I don't show up, then I don't keep the promise that it's done. It doesn't have anything to do with the person waiting. Understand how that is. If you were to say to me, can you pick me up at the airport, I'll give you $50 if you pick me up at the airport. Then it's a two-sided agreement, and then we have a law agreement that's no longer a promise. You see how that is? Because you have a part and I have a part. If I show up, then you're supposed to give me money and I'm supposed to give you a ride. It's no longer a one-sided agreement. What we see here, what we read in Genesis 15 this morning, between Abraham and God is one-sided. God makes a promise to Abraham and he tells him, I'm going to do this. Now I mentioned this last week, but just for review, Genesis 15, God originally gives a promise in Genesis 12. Genesis 15 is about 10 years later. Abraham is 75 when he gets the first promise. Genesis 15 is 85, still has no kids. His wife has been barren for 80 years. And they have none. And God, Abraham, understandably, is praying to God, what's going on? He said, you're going to do this, I believe you, but what's happening? And God shows up and he says, look at the stars, I'm going to give you that many children. And he, he reiterates the promise. And he says, I'm going to do it. It's still one side, God's still doing it. Abraham's part 
And it says that in Genesis 15, 6, he believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Abraham's part. I'm going to put my faith in what you're telling me. But Abraham's in no position to do anything except just say, okay, he's 85 years old. He doesn't really have a whole lot here that he can depend on his work, so he says, I'll believe you. But Abraham does, I think, what most of us would be thinking. I'd probably be too afraid to ask. He says, God, how will I know? How will I really know this will happen? And what God says to him is he says, I want you to, and this is where we get to that kind of, you know, a little bit cryptic reading that we had this morning where you hear it. He says, I want you to get these animals. And he tells them all these different animals. And he says, I want you to cut them in half. What in the world? You're in the maze a little bit now, right? You walk into the thing and you're thinking, what in the world is going on? I'm going to cut these animals in half. It's a cultural thing. We're so far removed, sometimes we miss it. Essentially, it would have been like God saying, I want you to write up a contract for me and I'm going to sign it. That's essentially what was happening. That was what they did. They would cut these animals in half and they'd lay them side by side and if we made an agreement together, let's say we, uh, Gil and I, Gil's going to sell me some land and we were living in that time. If we agree on a price, he says, I'll sell it to you for this much and I say, okay, and then we walk between the animals. And what we're saying is that I don't keep my bargain. If I don't say what I'm saying, may I be like these animals. May I be cut in half. May I be killed. That's, that's what it meant. So when, when God said to Abraham, cut the animals in half and lay them out, who knew exactly what he meant? He said, okay, that makes perfect sense. But what happens that didn't make perfect sense is if Abraham waits, says it grows dark, and God shows up, and then God in the form of this pot and the uh, smoking, uh, what do you call it? Anyway, the pot and the, and the, the torch. They, they move through, and they're representing God's character, who he is. And God moves through on his own, and that's it. And that's the end. He doesn't ask Abraham. He doesn't say, Abraham, this is dependent on you, now you do some things and you walk through. No, God goes through. Only God goes through. And what he's saying is, even if I have to be killed, I'm going to do this. This is all on me. I'm making the promise to you. So that's the promise. The first part is it's completely one-sided. It's completely God's doing. It's all on Him. Now look at verse 16, what Paul says, as we move forward on what the promise is. Look at verse 16 with me. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Paul says that promise all the way back in Genesis 12, I'm going to bless the world through your seed or your offspring. He he's talking about Jesus. All the way back there, he's talking about Christ at the very beginning. Now, when you read this, Paul makes this point of offsprings plural versus offspring singular. It's kind of like, where's he go? Very technical kind of argument. He gets into the words and whether, they're, whether it's plural or not in a... The reason he does so is because those false teachers that had come in and said, you've got to obey the law and put your faith in Christ. They, they could have easily said, no, 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 it's about offspring. It's about Israel. It's about the laws that Israel would get. You see how they could make that argument? And Paul says, no, it is offspring singular. And he makes his case on not only one word, one letter of one word, whether it's plural or singular. Just, just by way of us today as believers in taking God's word, what that says to us is the words matter. 
It's very important that we take seriously what God's word says. Paul builds this argument on one letter of one word. And he says, no, it can't be Israel, and it can't be the law, and it can't be these things. It is Jesus. It is offspring, one person. And he makes that case, and that's what he says, that it's all on Jesus. And he says that's the way it's always been. Always going back to, to Genesis 12 when he promises to Abraham. It actually goes back further than that. It actually goes back to Genesis 3. But we're not going to go there today, just, just for your reference. It actually goes all the way back to even Genesis 3. But from the very beginning, it was always about Christ, and that's what Paul's saying. It was always that. It was never you're going to be saved by the law. It was never, okay, now I give you the law, and that changes everything. He says, no, that's not it. So look at what it is. So think with me then. So then what is the purpose of the law? Actually, that's what Paul asked later on. Why then the law? In verse 19, he says that. Why the law? Why even have it if it's always been about Jesus? Well, look at verse 17 and 18, because we're going to start with what the law is not, what the law doesn't do. Look at verses 17 and 18. This is what I mean. <clears throat> the law which came 430 years afterwards does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it is no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. You see what he's saying? It doesn't change anything with Abraham. That promise is still in effect. He says 430 years later, that's when God gave it to Moses, Mount Sinai, using the Ten Commandments and all the laws that go with it. He says when that came, it didn't change anything about with Abraham. It didn't throw that out. It's still in effect. It's still about the promise. And then the second part, so that's what it's not. It's not to replace the promise. The second thing it's not to do is in verses 10 and 11. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident, no one is justified by God, I'm sorry, before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. What he says is, the law did not come to teach you how to be saved. I didn't give you the law so you can follow all these rules and then be saved. That's not what it does. Those are two things he says. It's not that. It's not replacing what he promised to Abraham, and it's not telling you how you're now saved. So what is it? Why the law? Why do we have it then? If that's what it's not, why even have it? If it's always about Jesus, and it's always faith in Jesus, and the Messiah coming, then why did he give it? And he gives us two reasons. Look at verse 19. The first reason he gives is he says, Why then the law? Paul asks the question. He knows his audience is thinking it. Well, then why in the world do we even have this? Well, Paul tells us, he says, It was added because of transgressions. Until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. What he's saying is, the world is messed up. And he says, when Adam and Eve sinned, sin entered the world, and it was downhill ever since. And all you got to do is read, go home and read Genesis 3 through 11. And you'll get a real clear picture of where it was headed. Genesis 3, Adam and Eve sinned. Genesis 4, you have the first murder, Cain and Abel. Genesis 6, it says that men's hearts were continually evil in all their thoughts. By Genesis 6, just a few generations later, their thoughts are continuously evil. And then that's when the flood comes. After the flood starts over, and then Genesis 11 will right back to it with the Tower of Babel. And it says they were building a tower for their own glory. Look at how smart I am. Sound familiar? 
that have any relevance to where we are today? <laughs> Look at how brilliant I am. That's what they were doing. And what Paul says is the tra- because of the transgressions, God gives the law to kind of curb how bad they are. I'm going to give you some rules to follow so you know who I am. This It's like putting a guardrail on a mountain road. People keep going off and he says, well, I'm going to give you this to try to just help you come back a little bit so I can show you how, how far off you've become. And we need that. I was thinking about it with, uh, with my children, with Jed and Ashley. They're three and five years old and they always want to play in the backyard, which is great. We've got a nice fence backyard, play in the backyard. But before they go out in the backyard, you have to give them a whole list of things. You're not allowed to go out of the gate. You're not allowed to pull the dog's tail. You're not allowed to pour out their dog food. You're not allowed to throw stuff off the deck. I mean, we go through all these things, and it's it's to constrain their evil. I mean, really, that's what it is. Kids are sinful, even from a young age, and if you don't give them any rules and any boundaries, they go out there, and it is. I mean, you, you send them out, and you go, oh, I forgot to remind them. It's been five minutes, and you walk out, and it looks like a bomb hit the backyard. And you go, if we need that, we need some guidance because man's heart is evil. We, we immediately go there. And so Paul says he gives it to us because of our transgressions to help keep us in line. We're so messed up. So that's part of it. But that's just a small part of it. Right? That's just a little part of, of, of the interim period between the promise giving and when Jesus comes. That's why the law is there. Partly for that. But the big reason is in verse 21 and 22. Look at 21 and 22. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. You see what he's saying? The law, same thing he said before, the law is not given so that you can be saved. You won't be saved by the law. Notice, if you're taking notes or if you're like me, you're writing your Bible, circle if. For if a law had been given that could give life. If a law. What he's saying is there's not one that can be given that could give life. But if it could, then you could be saved by your works. But you can't. That's what he's saying. That's what it's not. But look what he says in verse 22. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. You understand what he's saying there? He's saying, God gave us the law to show us we can't do it. That was the point. To imprison you under your sin. To make clear to you that you're sinful and you can't do it. I'm just going to show you. That's what he's saying. I'm just going to give you these things so even though you know you're not doing things right, just to remove all doubt that you're sinful. I want you to think about when God gave the law. You know the story. It's in Exodus 20 when God first gives the Ten Commandments. Israel gathers around Mount Sinai and God tells them all these things to prepare and he says, you're going to hear my voice. And the nation is assembled, millions of people waiting and God's booming voice comes and it's the Ten Commandments. And as they heard God speak, every person there listening was convicted. They were pronounced guilty that day, the second they heard it. Think about what it said. I mean, just think about thou shalt not... Uh, bear false witness. You shouldn't lie. That pretty much got everybody right there on that one. And that's not even going into all the others in the grave, all that stuff. But just that, when they heard it, it's like, I'm done. God requires perfection. You have to keep all the law. The second you hear it, you're, 
You're imprisoned under your sins, Paul says. But we, we're, we know. We know immediately we can't do it. And he says that's the point. That's the point of the law. And you can say, well, that sounds really morbid. God gave us the law to show us we're just hopelessly lost. No, he gave us the law to show us that the law points to the promise. It points to what he promised to Abraham. It doesn't say you're hopelessly lost. It says, I have to do it for you. And that's what he's saying. He's telling them that it points to that. I was thinking about it the other day. Uh, we're so stubborn, sometimes we need that. We need to be shown that we can't do it. Um, I, was, I was cleaning up in the basement the other day, and I was moving some weights, some dumbbells. And Asher will go and he'll pick up like a 20 pound, you know, he weighs like 35 pounds, and he'll pick out a 20 pound dumbbell, and you're like, wow, that's really good. And he starts moving and helping me. And he came to one that was 60 pounds. And I went to pick it up, and I said, he said, no, no, I'll get it. I'll get it, Dad. I'll do it. And I was like, you, I don't think so, but I don't think you can. Yeah, no, 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 I will do it. I will do it. And I said, okay. And he goes over, and his tiny little body struggles, and skinny little frame, and he can't even budget. He's moving it and moving it, and he can't. He just can't move it. And finally he stops and he goes, you're right, I can't do it. And he says, you, you do it, Dad. And then he moves on. That's what the law is for. We go up against it and then we say, I can't do this. You do it, Father. That's the only way. That's why it's there to point us to that realization. And then when you take the two and you bring the promise and the law together, they come together in the person of Jesus Christ. When we read in Genesis 15, what it says, And the darkness fell, right? And he split the animals, and they're there waiting. And Abraham doesn't know what's going to happen. He's thinking, we'll probably walk through this together, and we're going to make this promise. And no, God comes, and he walks through, and what he tells them is, even if I have to be killed, I will do it. I'll put my life on this, that this promise is going to happen. Well, 2,000 years later, he would keep his promise and be killed for us. It was pointing ahead all along to what Christ would have to do on our behalf. It was never about keep the law so you're good enough. And that's what Paul's saying. He's making these huge connections to say to the Galatians, you're so off if you think it's faith in Jesus plus do some other things. It's not that. It was always only faith in Jesus. The law was just to show you that. To remove all doubt. And when the law and the promise come together, they come together perfectly in the person of Jesus Christ. Because he comes and he keeps the law perfectly. And not only does he keep the law perfectly, he keeps the promise perfectly. Because he comes to do what we can't do and he puts the two together. I'll keep the law and even though you don't deserve it, I'll take your place and I'll give you the blessing. I will give you the promise because it's one-sided. And it was always dependent on me doing it for you. You see how that is? The law points to the promise. It always pointed to the promise. It's always been about that. And that's what Paul makes. See the enormity of what he's saying. It's a huge, wonderful, theological argument that spans all of the Old Testament. Leviticus. Rules 
on top of rules, on top of rules, were there to show us the holiness of God and that we can never attain it. So when you read through Leviticus, you read through all that stuff, and you get a picture of how other God is. And the only way we can ever reach that is by what Jesus did for us. And it all makes perfect sense together. So next time when you get to those passages, I want you to think about that it was all pointing to Jesus. And all those things all come together so perfectly in his person and work. Don't ever let yourself slip back into, it's my works, and I've got to do it. And it's about me You cling to the cross of Christ and what he's done for you. That's the only way you can get the law and the promise to come together. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the promise and we thank you that we can stand here today and we live in a time that we can see the fulfillment of it, that we can see how all your scripture gloriously comes together perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus. We can't thank you enough uh, that, that it's not dependent on our works, the thing that we could never attain, but that it's all dependent on your promise and what you are doing for us. May we live each day of our lives basking in that glorious truth. We thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.